Tested is sponsored by Hungry Harvest, offering farm fresh produce delivered to your door starting at $15. Shop now with code WUNC. Every delivery supports local hunger solving organizations. Find more at hungryharvest.net. I'm Dave DeWitt. This is Tested from WUNC, a look at what the day's challenges tell us about where we are, what we believe, and who we want to be in North Carolina and the South. Governor Roy Cooper won't be playing the Apollo anytime soon, but what the governor lacks in stage presence, he makes up for in a sort of stoic trustworthiness. Like when a dentist tells you you need a root canal, it's not pleasant information, but you sense that it's a fair statement of fact. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining today's update on COVID-19 in North Carolina. As of today, Cooper begins his frequent COVID updates pretty much the same way every time. An update with business-like empathy of the number of lab-confirmed cases, hospitalizations, and eventually the number of people in the state who have died. We remember all those we've lost to this cruel disease as we keep their loved ones in our thoughts right now. With each briefing, there is sadly always a new, larger number to share. Dashboards get updated, bar graphs get taller. Behind the stats and sympathetic words are real lives lost. 3,500 in North Carolina, more than 200,000 in the U.S., and 1 million across the globe. We try to grasp the human toll behind those large numbers, but our minds haven't really evolved to do that. The populations of Fayetteville, Durham, and Winston-Salem are each in the ballpark of the number of deaths in America. Imagine everyone who lives in one of those cities, gone. It seems impossible to grasp that number of dead family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors. So many of us just don't. I think it's quite adaptive to basically sort of, you know, shut down sort of the emotional impact of these things as much as possible. Uh, and, you know, this is sort of this level of numbness that sets in. I think it's a very adaptive way of dealing with a crisis when, when you have to act under those circumstances. Elke Weber is a professor of psychology and public affairs, as well as energy and the environment, at Princeton University. She studies how people respond to stress and risk. She says the ways we mentally and emotionally process an event like a pandemic changes over time. And when we initially get these messages like we did you know, back in March, we actually do pay attention uh, because it's a new message. And we might sort of, uh, you know, sort of suspend our beliefs that nothing bad has happened to us yet and pay attention to it and, and, and take precautions. But then as time goes by, you know, at this point, what, like five, six months have gone by? Uh, and I've certainly taken precautions. I've continued to take precautions. But my personal level of alarm about so something bad happening has gone way down, in part because nothing bad has happened to me for the last six months. And so in some sense, sort of success in not having you know, sort of had personal or you know, sort of negative experience with the thing has, has sort of reduced our visceral level of alarm and therefore taking precautions. Before COVID-19, we didn't have much precedent on how to cope with the stress of a pandemic. But Weber says there are other environments, like war zones, where people have had to adapt to long periods of intense stress. In a war zone, after a while, you know, the, the, the most horrible atrocities become normal, you know, and you only pay attention. In fact, our neurons are wired in such a way 
that we only pay attention to change, you know, because change typically signals that something needs to be done. If the change is for the better, we have to go and exploit it. And if the change is for the worse, we have to go and, and, and take precautions. But if something has been there as a steady state for a while, it sort of disappears. And so obviously the pandemic, not yet anyway, doesn't have an end date in sight. Um, we're enduring this grief for the long haul. Um, as you said, this we're, we sort of learn to live with it. Um, but how does that compare to sort of a single event that has a sort of stark before and after where you can process the grief more so in the aftermath, sort of like a natural disaster or terrorist attack? Well, I think it's absolutely right that there's also sort of solution fatigue. Yeah? Uh, and uh, right now, yeah, we don't know how much long as, you know, this sort of, you know, these restrictions will go on. And, 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 and while we might be very willing to do this for a short period of time, you know, a week, a month, maybe even two or three months, but you know, with, with, with the assurance of an end date, uh, I think we're much more willing sort of to make the sacrifices when things drag on forever, then you have to sort of ask yourself, well, what is worse? Yeah, is it worse? You're taking maybe more risks uh, you know, to get infected, you know, to go back to your old social relations, you know, to go back to your job, uh, to go back of earning an income. Uh, and, and so I think it's in, in some sense, it's an important uh, conversation we have to have you know, at a societal level about what kind of trade-offs are we willing to make in the long run? That's a question also that's sort of central to our response to climate change. Um, it's another long-lasting occurrence, obviously, with big consequences. What are the similarities between sort of this pandemic and climate change? Well, I've, I've oftentimes said you know, that, that COVID in many ways is a wonderful uh, test case that fate has sent us you know, to figure out how to get things right uh, when it comes to climate change. Uh, if you look at the two hazards, they have very, very similar patterns. In both cases, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about what the future will bring. But in, in both cases, action requires you know, sacrifice. Right now, we have to change our lifestyles. And the benefits of both actions are in the future. And so it's very easy to discount the benefits. The temptation to procrastinate is always there because in both cases, not taking action doesn't kill us right away. The big difference is that sort of the COVID window between sort of the wrong action and negative consequences is in the vicinity of weeks, you know, days or weeks. In the case of climate change, it's in the vicinity of years and decades. So how can we individually do a better job of, of seeing these, uh, and I'm talking specifically about the pandemic, this sort of large number of deaths and, and not see it just as a number, but actually process sort of what it means on a personal and empathetic level? And is it even healthy to do that? It's a good question. And I think sort of different people probably will have different ways of coping with it. It's also, you know, you have to make the differentiation between sort of what it means to us personally, uh, how much do we care about sort of people in, in, in faraway places. But I think maybe one thing sort of that is useful, regardless of how you think about it, is the fact that we can take action, you know, that to, to realize that simple precautions, you know, we might not have to shut down our whole national economy. If you look at countries like Sweden, for example, you know, they have kept their economy going, but people are wearing masks, people are enforcing social distancing, uh, people are avoiding unnecessary uh, groups. You, know, you don't necessarily have to go on vacation. So if you restrict sort of the voluntary things that are under our control, we actually can do fairly well. But it does mean that we all have to cooperate. Elke Weber is a professor of psychology and public affairs, as well as energy and the environment at Princeton University. Hang tight. More in a moment. 
Hi, I'm Russ Henry. I work with Dave here at WUNC. COVID-19 pretty much put a stop to the world as we know it. And while it may be the biggest news story of the year so far, it's far from the only major story we're covering at WUNC. Our team is working tirelessly to keep you updated and put headlines about public health, politics, race relations, education, and the unique culture of our state in context every single day. And we're only able to tell you these stories with your support. So if you've enjoyed this podcast or any of WUNC's other shows and content, there's a really special way to show it. Visit WUNC.org and click the little heart at the top of the page to give now. Your support as a member of WUNC is invaluable to our work and how we're able to help keep you on top of a relentless news cycle. So consider a donation after this episode ends. And as always, thanks for donating and thanks for listening. Elkie Weber made the connection between how we process the pandemic to how we think about climate change. Both pose a threat if we don't do something about them. But climate change is a threat many people see as affecting some other part of the world, or so far down the road that other priorities demand our more immediate focus. And then science reminds us otherwise. Researchers at NC State University say all you need to do is look at the trees. Coastal forests are ecologically and economically important because they provide many ecosystem services. So knowing where and when these changes are occurring really will help us identify those areas that are most vulnerable. Lindsay Smart is a research associate at the Center for Geospatial Analysis at NC State. Basically, she uses geography, coordinates, GPS imagery, to gather data on the environment. Lindsay is part of a team that examined how sea level rise is affecting a forest along the coastline of the Albemarle Pamlico Peninsula. The team found that an increase of salt water in marshy areas with trees that depend on fresh water is causing a rise in something called ghost forests. Ghost forests are essentially stands of dead or dying trees that were once healthy coastal forests. Coastal forests in this region are freshwater dependent ecosystems. So when they experience um, exposure to salt briefly, so brief periods of inundation, coastal forests are resilient. But if there's prolonged exposure, then these coastal forests will be stressed and ultimately this will lead to mortality, which is you'll see these dead snags. Um, They're often whitish in color because some of the bark has come off and that's why they get the term ghost forests. Smart says preserving the coastal forest is crucial because the trees serve as a buffer between the sea or sound and inland areas. They help protect from storms and provide a habitat for wildlife. But when they die and become ghost forests, they emit carbon dioxide. And this carbon dioxide can contribute to climate change, which would mean more sea level rise and more ghost forests. The loss of coastal forests could potentially actually contribute to global warming because forests are great at storing above ground carbon. When forests or plants die through decomposition and decay, carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere, potentially exacerbating global warming because carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. The study found that ghost forests spread across 15% of an unmanaged natural area over the course of 13 years. That comes out to about 130,000 tons of carbon lost from dying trees. But Smart says there are ways to combat the spread of more ghost forests along the coast. 
So this region is a really, you know, rural region with agricultural landowners. And to do this in such a low elevation area, they've established some extensive drainage and canal networks um, to essentially push water or keep water off of the ag lands. And, you know, if they're managed appropriately, they can keep water off. But as hurricanes and storm surge events become more severe, these canals and ditch um, ditches can actually serve as conduits for saltwater. So it really depends on the management of these canals and drainage networks. And that management would require investment in the very clear reality that climate change is not only real, but it's having a dramatic impact on our state and our world right now. That's it for this episode of Tested. I'm Dave DeWitt. Charlie Shelton-Dorman is our producer. Lindsay Foster-Thomas is the executive producer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>